In the eighth chapter of Revelation, John sees a vision, a continuation of the vision that he has been observing as it unfolds before him of seals being opened. I'm not going to attempt to try to give any explanation for all of these seals. Uh, Dr. Glower said he would do that at noon, so good luck with that. But there's an odd uh, statement. All of this unfolding of these uh, timeless eschatological seals unfold, and then the eighth chapter opens. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. That strikes me as odd. That Revelation, with its seeming timelessness, its eschatological vision, would have some sense of about half an hour was how long silence lasted in heaven. And yet, can you imagine the silence of heaven for one moment, all of heaven falling silent before the throne? This may be the sort of silence the psalmist imagines uh, and, in fact, lives into in Psalm 62. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. In our reading this morning in the litany, the verse is repeated several verses down. I believe this side of the room said, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And then later, this side of the room echoes uh, us, too. For God alone, our soul waits in silence as well. There are other attested versions of Psalm 62 where this side of the room's declarative, my soul waits in silence, is echoed a few verses later by what would be this side of the room's more of a question and imperative. So it would read, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. The assurance from here, the more questioning from here. And it's this move that I have in mind this morning as we come into the sermon, this move between the confident entry into silence and prayer and the struggle that leads us to the point where we have to encourage ourselves and others. Oh, my soul, wait in silence. In a recent book, author Timothy Egan tells the untold story of those who survived the great American Dust Bowl, drawing the reader into the vast emptiness of the drought-stricken southern plains from Lubbock north to Dalhart, up through Oklahoma, into Kansas, and into Nebraska. The land is described as haunted by silence. He says, on those days when the wind stops blowing across the face of the southern plains, the land falls into a silence that scares people in the way a big house can haunt after the lights go out and no one else is there. It scares them because the land is too much, too empty, claustrophobic in its immensity, It scares them because they feel lost with nothing to cling to, disoriented. It scares them because they wonder what is next. It scares them because of the forced intimacy with a place that gives nothing back to a stranger, a place where the land and its extreme weather demand only one thing, 
humility. Describing a geography of desolation, the author connects silence with fear and then humility and calls the whole experience the worst hard time. And this by far is what most people associate with silence. Not necessarily the 1930s Dust Bowl, but something to move through as quickly as possible. On a date, silence is awkward. In a worship service, it means someone forgot their cue. Silence means the internet's down again, or a storm has knocked out the cable, or it means the kids have all gone and moved away, and the nest is empty. Most of the time, most people would rather just avoid it at all costs. Whether the geography of silence is the nothingness between I-35 and the Colorado ski resorts, or it is interior, the silence of the soul between mountaintop religious experiences. Some people, without the noise, think they're in the worst hard time of their lives. It scares them. John Stewart was having a somewhat awkward interview with a young actress named Aubrey Plaza, asking her about one of her new movies and her ongoing TV show and a movie that she's working on at the same time. And John Stewart, who's either a brilliant satirist or buffoon, depending on your political persuasion. Did I get everybody? Just want to be sure. John Stewart, the brilliant clown. Just want to be sure we're all together here. John Stewart says, so you're doing all of this, uh, but when do you get Aubrey time, time to reconnect with Aubrey? And her response was, Aubrey, no like to connect with Aubrey. She said, when I don't work, I spiral into a hole of depression, and I don't need to do that. And John Stewart said, you know, people tell me that I need to relax and take some time, but what I find is that there's a small window of time between, wow, it's so nice to be with my thoughts, again, to you felt everyone who ever loved you. (laughs) He said, I find that a very short window. And I gather I'm not alone and sitting up straight going, yes, I know that feeling. And so how remarkable it is with all of this, that here's the psalmist stepping confidently into Psalm 62 as if silence is a good thing. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Apparently for some, Silence can be a good thing. There is, as the psalm begins, a kind of settledness and assurance in the posture of the psalmist before God. Let's not call it arrogance. This is not the song of the arrogant. This is still a song of the humble before the Lord. For God alone, my soul waits in silence as if silence isn't something to be afraid of or sprint through or speed through or avoid, but something to embrace and even pursue. The opening line of the psalm is both theological and intimately personal. From the monotheistic, for God alone, to the personal, 
my soul, my nephesh, all that I am, all that animates me and gives me life, to the contemplative, my nephesh waits. Silence here is not the awkward absence of noise. It is a soul that has settled at the angle of repose, a calmness, a patience, rooted in trust in God alone for whom my soul is waiting. Some people, it seems, welcome it. They hunger for it. They're at home in it, whether it's monks in the desert or an overwhelmed stay-at-home parent pulling in the drive after the kids are dropped off at preschool. Quiet is a welcome friend, not an unsettling enemy. Silence can be a metaphor for the kind of settled inner peace we hope to have when we shuffle into an interview with the search committee. I know who I am. I know that I'm called. I know my God. I got this. It's the confidence we hope to have in all manner of pastoral situations. When it's time, when that moment comes, when it's time to share your faith with a stranger and there's no way out of it. When the question of theodicy comes to the family who usually sits on the fourth pew on the left. When the deacons want to toss you out on your ear. Late on Saturday night when the sermon isn't coming together. Eugene Peterson says that silence sinks a shaft all the way down to bedrock. Oh, to have the kind of settled silence of one who is assured before the Lord, even in tension, even in crisis, a monk in the desert or a Eugene Peterson or the writer of the psalm. The psalmist is writing, reflecting on prayer and faithfulness to God and the declarative mood, confidence, not arrogance, peace, not apathy, settledness without self-reliance. This is faith expressed as we'd like to live it. For God alone my soul waits. This is the kind of faith that can sustain you through the hard times. And so it's all the more noticeable that by four verses later, the mood has darkened considerably. It's become less sure of itself, less declaration and more straining, holding on to that little finger ledge on the cliff, remembering by sheer will what once came easily. And between the two, trouble has come. The way has gotten tougher. And by just four verses later, the psalmist isn't in the declarative mood anymore, but in the imperative, imploring his own soul to dwell in the silence that was once a trusted friend. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. Do you hear the difference? Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. By verse 5, for God alone, oh, my soul wait in silence. A person who was once at peace can find themselves in need of renewal in the ways of peace. No one ever said, once at peace, always at peace. But someone, as I recall, once said, I believe, help my unbelief. Silence is not only troubling for many of us, it's also hard work. Ask anyone who's tried to pray in silence for any period of time, and they'll tell you it's hard and it's work, and when do we learn it? Seminary teaches us how to talk good. 
In some classes, we learn the right things to say about God, the human condition, suffering and pain and Jesus and post-critical engagements with redacted ancient texts. In other classes, we learn good ways to say them in the hospital room. Don't say, oh, that's terrible. My aunt died of that. (laughs) We learn to talk good in the pulpit. Remember, theotakos, not christotakos. Theotakos, not christotakos. And we learn to talk good in the funeral. Don't say, God needed another angel in heaven. This is all good and it's needed. After all, your church will expect you to do more than just sit in silence. They expect that you'll have something to say and hope that seminary has prepared you somewhat to say it. And I say somewhat because their expectations are lower than you might think or, frankly, hope. You'll think you've spent three years learning how to talk good. They'll think you've spent three years learning to say stuff that they can't understand when you try to say it. Theotakos, not Christotakos. Get it right. You'll think you've earned the right to have something to say about the budget or the direction of the diaconate or the mission or the lack thereof of the church. They'll think you ought to just sit there for a while and let them work it out. They have a few years on you, after all, and tenure in the church. You'll meet someone at the pastor's welcome potluck who will say something like, Hello, I'm so glad to meet you. My name is so-and-so. I've been here about 15 years. I'm one of the new ones. And when you hear that, you'll know what they'll think about all the words you've spent so long learning. And yet do not despair. By some cosmic wonder and grace, those same people believe that you should be given attention for 15 or 20 or 25 minutes every single week to preach the gospel with words. And they want to hear from you. But really, though, and don't forget, they want to hear a word from God. And they hope that you'll hear that word and then get out of the way enough in your sermon for that word to come to them. They want to hear you preach, and they want you to bless them. They will never call you a priest, but they want you to be one. And all you learn here about the right words to say and how to say them and when to say them will serve you well because words are vital. In a pastoral care crisis, the pastor is expected to have some word of comfort or wisdom to share. In the pulpit, well, you have to say something even though I have it on good authority that my friend Josh Carney came here and joked that I have so many academics in my church that I just stand in the pulpit and read scripture and then say, why don't we just think about this for a little while in silence? (laughs) If only I can hear some of my parishioners saying. We We learn to speak well the word of God, and we should. We say we are people of the book, which contains many words. We are people who believe God brought all creation into being by speaking words and then anointing that creation with words that we still long to hear of our sermons and our ministries. It is good. We believe God inhabited the world by the incarnate word who took flesh and walked among us. And furthermore, many of us here are from church traditions that exalt the spoken word. The pulpit is elevated and center stage. 
the altar table is down below or off to the side or somewhere. The pulpit is where all the action is. The table is where the decorative flowers are displayed, except once in a while when the wafers and cups are served. In the first church I pastored, it wasn't typically called a worship service or a community gathered for worship. It was the preaching service. Let me be fair. It was the preaching service. One of the older men and I grew very close while I was there. We worked together on small construction projects all over the community, spent lots of time together. Our family spent Mother's Day and Father's Day and Thanksgivings together almost every year. And yet I was convinced after the years I was there that he never knew my name. He always called me Preacher. Preacher, hand me the hammer. Preacher, nice sermon today. It's always Preacher. Only later did I come to understand that was a high term of respect from him, perhaps the highest. Whatever your business card says you are eventually, to some people, you're a preacher. You're the one who preaches. You're the one who's most fully identified as the one who speaks words about God. You're a preacher. And as we've said, seminary is a place where we begin to learn to do that, to say something close to the right words at somewhere near the right time on our best days. But with all those words and all this speech, not to mention all the noise around us and too often from us, when do our souls learn to enter and dwell and trust God like the psalmist, the mystics? the saints, especially when very likely there will be no one else admonishing you. For God alone, O your soul, wait in silence. If I have one piece of advice I've learned from 16 years of pastoral ministry, it's this. Don't read Barbara Brown Taylor before your sermon is done. Well, there's two things I've learned in 16 years of ministry. One, don't open the check that they give you for doing the funeral before you preach the funeral. Save it for afterward. Your integrity needs to not know what's in there, whether it's high or low. The second thing I've learned is don't read Barbara Brown Taylor before your sermon is finished. Because there are just some people who are better than you. And if you read their stuff before your stuff is done, you'll know you can't come up with anything better, and so you'll just plagiarize it. I broke my only rule. I was rummaging through my shelves and found my old BBT book, When God is Silent. I should have just shoved it back in the shelf like a hot potato, but I opened it, and now... I got nothing to say but what she has to say. She says it's more it's she says it is more and more difficult for us to choose silence when communication is possible. To let the telephone ring, to leave the email unread, to unplug the fax machine. This was 15 years ago. These she says these amount to acts of social sabotage. To choose Silence for even an hour, we must risk the loss of connection with other people. 
who may have a hard time understanding how anything could be more important to us than responding to them. We must also handle our own sense of anxiety. And this is where I think she's even more right. What if that calls from the fire department or from the hospital or from someone who wants to invite me to dinner? For some of us, silence provokes so much internal chatter that it cancels itself out. Indeed, internal silence is so much more than just external noiselessness, though it starts there by turning off the email and the phone and entering the silence of God to find it, we hope, profound, possibly terrifying, but also gentle. Preachers would do well to take a lesson from our musician friends about the dance of sound and silence. What is at stake is not just our sermon prep, but our souls. St. Gregory Nazianzen calls the soul, the, uh, the, spiritual, the soul of a spiritual person, an instrument played by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost... <clears throat> The Holy Ghost draws from this instrument harmonies and a melody of which human will and reason could never even dream. It is this music vibrating on the well-tuned strings of a perfect human personality that makes a man or a woman a saint. It is when special harmonies are wrung from a human instrument that the Holy Ghost makes a man or a woman a contemplative. Thomas Merton says this about our role as ministers, as, as, as ministers who are also instruments. The master himself does not waste time tuning the instrument. He shows his servant how to do it and leaves him to the work. If he then comes and finds the piano still out of tune, he does not bother to play anything on it. He strikes a chord and then goes away. The trouble generally is that the tuner has been banging on the keys himself all day without bothering to do the work assigned to him, which is to keep the thing in tune. That little last line brings to mind St. Paul's important words, I can do all things, but if I have not love, I am a banging gong or a clashing cymbal. The psalmist's silence and the apostle's love aren't lexically synonymous, but they are twin sisters spiritually. Merton writes, you cannot love God unless you know God. And you cannot come to know him unless you have a little time and a little peace in which to pray and think about him and study his truth. Time and peace are not easily come by in this civilization of ours. And so those who profess to serve God are often forced to get along without either and to sacrifice their hopes of an interior life. 
But how far can one go in this sacrifice before it ceases to be a sacrifice and becomes a prevarication? The truth is we are simply not permitted to devote ourselves to God without at the same time leading an interior life. That wisdom sounds tough, but it's also an invitation, an invitation to renewal, an invitation to join the desert, join those in the desert following our fathers and mothers who went out there before us, an invitation to the places where there are not enough easy answers for all the tough problems there too. It's an invitation to pause from banging, banging, clanging out more and more noise and instead have the courage sometimes to enter the deep silence and from there to open yourself and allow the Spirit to make your life and ministry hum in tune with the music of the spheres.